like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. My, uh, my mother-in-law says some pretty funny things. And, uh, I'm not making fun of her, but I have to share something that she said because it goes with the message so well. She just says things and they strike me as funny. I don't know if they'll strike you as funny, but we were talking one time and my, my mother-in-law said this sentence just like this. She said, my nose picks up smells. Right. <laughs> so does mine. I think, I think most people's noses, unless something is wrong, pick up smells. I know what she meant when she was saying it, but it just strikes me funny. Our, yes, our world is filled with smells, right? What exactly is a church called to do? This question is vital because our answer to it will determine our language and our behavior as much as it will shape our goals and direction as a church. I believe that everything the epistles, the letters of the New Testament call us to is an extension or really an application of the Great Commission given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I believe the apostles never really moved beyond that foundational calling from their Lord. Everything in these letters is for disciples of Jesus to observe and to teach others as He commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe the Scriptures teach us that a church's calling and purpose are singular. There's one thing. It can be worded in different ways, of course, but we are called to spread the knowledge of Christ in the place where God has placed us And beyond. When churches, when the building, when the group of people inside of them become the be all end all, mainly as places of or for the comfort and enjoyment of the people inside of it, reflecting their preferences and their priorities, they have unknowingly departed from the calling of Jesus. That is why, if I could propose this, so many churches decline and eventually die. Once the members who've held it up financially and structurally die or move away, the multiplication of disciples, the multiplication of disciples, not merely the addition of more people, but the multiplication of disciples in that case wasn't in the DNA of the church. And so when the generation that tailored the church to suit themselves, when that generation dies off, the church that they were a part of, dies off. So in reality, this will sound very harsh, but I hope the picture is helpful to you. They were orphanages. They were providing temporary care for the people inside, but they were not homes made up of families that reproduce. We talk of ourselves as a family. That's biblical. It's correct. We should. But what do families do? What makes a family a family? They reproduce. More of them. When the passion of the church members is to preserve the name, the building of the church, to the degree, again, that the preferences of the members become more important actually than the gospel, that church is dying, whether it realizes it or not. It's only a matter of time. If God didn't want things to change, He wouldn't have created time. He wouldn't have subjected our entire existence to time. 
even as His church in the world. Faithfully and consistently spreading the knowledge of Christ over time is impossible if God doesn't abide, oversee, and intervene if He's not relevant at every step. If we always have the ability, the money, the tools to accomplish everything we want to, our recognition of our need for the power of Christ to make and keep us what we are will diminish over time. It's like we'll be memorializing Him, right? Memorializing Him more than worshiping Him. If we start to think we're a natural institution held up by things and people and programs, we'll cut ourselves off from the intended source of our power and provision. Again, I reiterate something I said or was trying to say this morning. If what we want to do as a church does not require Jesus to do miracles, then we're just another man-made organization with religious ties. We won't dream dreams so big that only God can fulfill them. We'll be content so long as the bills are paid and the seats are full enough that it isn't embarrassing to go, right? I love our church. You all are some of the most precious gifts of God's grace in my life. I don't go back on that. I don't qualify that. It's absolutely true. And I am more thankful than you can imagine, more sometimes than my face would make you think. But you don't belong to me. You don't belong to me. God doesn't move in your hearts to be so good to me and my family for my sake, but to hold me up for the task of our proclamation of Christ as his people in the Ohio Valley. So I can't take advantage of your kindness by not yearning for our corporate conformity to the image of Christ. Because, beloved, we are called to something much higher than just enjoying each other's company. And I do. Enjoy your company very much. But keeping the glory and supremacy of Christ front and center in the hearts and minds of church members is impossible. Again, if God doesn't abide, oversee, and intervene at every step. If his word is not rightly divided. But that is our calling to faithfully hold to and proclaim the glory and supremacy of Jesus, our Savior. It's the reason we exist In the Ohio Valley, God has called each one of us, each one of us, to the task of spreading the knowledge of Christ, beloved, not just me. So, again, this is not my unique vision for our church. My task is just to make sure that our vision for the church is God's vision for the church, or that God's vision for the church is our vision for the church. Paul's letters lay out very uniquely for us the who and the what of church, the how and the why, we are ministers of a new covenant, beloved, of the proclamation of God's amazing grace for sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we allow any other agenda, whether it's good or bad, to get in the way of this, we have no right whatsoever to dishonor the name of Christ by calling ourselves His church. Our faithful and ongoing work to spread the knowledge of Christ requires constant empowerment from God above. So let's pray, and we'll look at this passage together. Father, I ask you tonight to fill me with your Holy Spirit for the task of preaching this message and this text to your people as one of your people. Lord, I pray that you would overshadow who I am and what I want 
and take control of my mind and my mouth for your sake and for the sake of those that hear. And Father, I ask that you would allow everyone to hear this great passage and its message for us. And I ask and pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2 in Second Corinthians. Paul writes, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So quickly, Titus had been sent by Paul to deliver what he called a severe or tearful letter to the church in Corinth. During this time, God had provided Paul with excellent opportunities uh, to preach the gospel in Troas, but he lacked peace of mind because Titus was delayed. He didn't meet Paul there as they had agreed upon. He's restless because he's not only concerned for Titus's safety, but as 7.5 reveals later, his uncertainty and fears were growing for the situation in Corinth. The longer Titus was delayed and couldn't report it to him. Eventually, however, Paul was reunited with Titus in Macedonia, which renewed his spirit. And we pick it up in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So even though Paul had been dealing with a restless spirit, he was thankful because in Christ, God always, even when our spirits are restless, leads us in triumphal procession. When Rome celebrated a victory, they would have these great parades through the city and they'd have a train of captives from their latest conquest bringing up the rear. You could still see uh, images of these parades in ancient works of art. When Paul uses this language that would have been immediately accessible to uh, his Roman audience in Corinth, however, he pictures God as the sovereign victor with Jesus Christ as his conquering general. And so Paul and his companions, and by extension Christians, such as those in the church at Corinth, had been captured by Christ. They're in this train. They're joyfully following him. And Paul says that God is always doing this, always leading us in a triumphal procession, proclaiming the victory of his son. That's the context in which all Christian ministry takes place. We are always victorious. Our ministry as the church is a victory parade along the roads and ridges of the Ohio Valley through which the triumph of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed and celebrated. So the centrality and supremacy of Jesus cannot be forgotten. It can't be put on the periphery. It's not like one element of what we do. It's literally the spirit, the essence of everything we are and everything we do. Our very existence is meant to be the parade route, if you will, on which Jesus is being made known in the Ohio Valley. So we have one flag. We have one standard to raise and to pledge allegiance to. Not many. There's no other reason for existing. Through us, Paul says, God is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus everywhere. God talks like he owns the church. Like he decides what it's going to be used for. That's how Paul viewed his ministry as an apostle and that of his companions. And now we understand when he uses the pronoun us, that this is what God is doing through his church, period, all the time. We are the means by which God spreads the fragrance of Jesus in the world. 
We aren't meant to smell like anything else. During these great parades, sometimes perfumes were sprinkled or incenses were burned along the processional route. While our gospel will often be scorned by those who reject it to God, all the time his people's proclamation of it is a pleasing aroma that smells to him like the victory of Jesus. So God is being glorified by our proclamation, not by our success. Right? That's in his hands. Wherever the church goes, wherever the gospel is claimed to be the message, it must and it will smell like Jesus. Again, if we don't smell like Jesus, we aren't a church. Right? Look at 15 again. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. You realize that's what God made you when He saved you. You realize that's what God made you when He saved you, that that's what you are, a fragrance. To some, from death to death. To others, from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So this is not something a church can decide to do or not to do. Do you notice that? If we claim the name of Christ, then we are, we will be the aroma of Christ to God among two different groups of people. So this is important. This is very important. The Bible divides people into two different groups and only two. It has nothing to do with race or culture, location or ethnicity, political party or creed or religion. No, no, no. Two groups now in the world under the new covenant with Jesus on his throne. And among them both, those who are being saved and those who are perishing, those are the two groups. Among both, we are the aroma of Christ to God. If we take it on ourselves to divide people up along different lines in a practically infinite line of labels and groups that are available... If we see people as not in those two groups, but in all kinds of others, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, communist, capitalist, black, white, etc., etc., we will not see people as God sees them then. We will not see people as God sees them, as those, number one, one group, those in whom the Spirit abides by grace through faith in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ that He's saving and bringing home to Himself, or as those who reject his gospel and don't believe it or have never heard it. Those are the two groups. That's it. That's how Christians see the world. If as the church, if as the aroma of Christ to God in the world, we see people in terms of all these other affiliations and preferences and classes or racial makeup or whatever the reason we have to keep them at a distance or put them in a category, we cannot be the church. And beloved, don't think this means then that the option, and I want to explain this because it will sound strange, don't think that means the option is faithfulness or compromise. To those who believe in and love Jesus, we will be a fragrance from life to life when we proclaim Christ. There will be resonance between us and others who believe in and love our proclamation, for it's also theirs. But to the unbelieving, we will smell like death even as we proclaim a message of love and forgiveness and salvation by grace alone. So we won't be rejected because we're more righteous or more deserving than them, and they know it because that's how we act. We're going to be rejected because we smell like Jesus. Precisely, beloved, because we proclaim His gospel. There's nothing else that 
Jesus says makes you offensive. It's that you smell like Him. You smell like Him. You say, but I thought if we, if all this talk of loving people and being gracious, if, if I thought if, if we tried, that our options were to be faithful to God or you, you can't be faithful to God and kind to sinners. You, you just, you can't do that. If you do, you're compromising. If we try to love people with the gospel, it will eventually mean compromising because we'll be afraid to call sin, sin or something. No, beloved. No. What, what did they do to Jesus? Was Jesus afraid to call sin, sin? Did Jesus compromise? No. He loved and he served people, again, so close to sinners that they labeled him one of them and they killed him for it. They killed him for that. Don't think that the church is supposed to be more righteous than Jesus. Don't think if we proclaim him, we're going to walk a different path than he did. Remember his calling in the gospel of Mark to take up our crosses. You don't do that by being a jerk. You do it by being like Jesus, who was loving and kind and never got frustrated or upset verbally with people unless they were self-righteous. Or didn't believe him when he had made it so clear. His own disciples, really. Those who reject Jesus know it means they're doomed. Our proclamation of that reminds them of this. Even when we are kind to them. There's no way around this. So again, the church's calling is not to try to be countercultural. We are countercultural by the message we proclaim. That doesn't mean we can't, we shouldn't proclaim it in a loving and gracious but firm way. We absolutely should. That will get you rejected. It doesn't matter how nice you're being. The content of the message is deplorable. It stinks to the world. So don't worry about trying to be so countercultural that we're offensive. Sometimes we even, we don't even talk in ways that the world can track with. We have, we have like our own language, our own subculture. How you doing, brother? Nobody talks like that. But we do. What does that mean? Right? We, 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 and again, you don't have to stop doing that. That's not what I mean. I'm just saying, understand that we have our own thing. Don't worry about trying to be so countercultural that you're offensive. You're, you're going to be offensive by being faithful to the gospel. Not our moral platforms. That, that's not the way God has set up that they would know that we're Christians. Just preach Christ crucified. Lovingly without any compromise, and we'll stink. We, we aren't talking about compromising anything when we talk about being the church in the Ohio Valley. We're talking precisely about faithfulness to our calling. And in verse 16, Paul asks what we should all be asking when we consider such a high calling. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to be the aroma of Christ to God in this world? Who is sufficient to smell like life to some and death to to others? For, notice that in verse 17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. They don't stink to anybody, peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul says, he's saying, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those actually commissioned by God. There are those who peddle his word. For profit, we're not like that, right? Our message smells like life to some and death to others. We're not peddling anything. 
right? We're not peddlers of God's word. It's not a for-profit ministry. So the ministry of Christ is not set up to get you and I to profit in this world. That's not what it's for. In fact, if we see it as that, if we see our Christianity as the means to earthly gain in whatever form that takes, money, stability, prosperity, peace, etc., if we think that's what it is here to give us, we will compromise it. Because that's not what it is. And so in the scriptures, you'll constantly be bumping up against things that you can't proclaim as they are because they'll ruin your agenda to get the gospel to be for profit. When it comes to this whole idea of compromise, we need to be much more concerned for how our own hearts tempt us to do that than we're concerned about changing musical styles or something. That, that's not compromise. Right? That's not letting liberalism in the church. If we've come to the point where anything different than what we like is liberalism, we're off the reservation. Okay? What is proclaimed for profit in the world won't smell like death to anybody. That's what everybody wants. The fragrance of Jesus is that of one who lost everything in this world to gain it in another. To those who love Jesus, it will smell like life. It will smell like this. To those who reject him, it will smell like death to not profit in this world. If that isn't the result of our proclamation, then we're not proclaiming Christ. And notice the focus is to God in ministry. Do you notice that? In this passage, my focus, our focus as the church is on the vertical. God is producing and bearing fruit with the proper horizontal effect. Now notice where Paul goes here in three one. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. So has Paul said these things about their commission and sincerity because he wants their commendation or he wants to impress them? Is he bragging? Has he said them because his opponents who had been coming to Corinth and preaching against him had come with these letters of recommendation from Judea And so they're demanding that he should produce such letters to prove that he's really an apostle and not an imposter. So maybe by saying these things, he can, um, you know, get them to provide these letters to prove his authority as an apostle. That is not why Paul is saying what he said in these last few verses. He's not commented on his authority or his commission or sincerity because he wants them to think highly of him or to get them to write some letters of commendation for him. He said them because he wants to distinguish between the message that is authentic, that smells like life to some and death to others, and the message that is fraudulent and is peddled for profit and built on lies. So if there are people that want some kind of verification that Paul's ministry is bona fide apostolic ministry, they need look no further than the Corinthian Christians themselves. Look at verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Now, we have to stop here and ask Paul, just check with him if he's being serious. Was Paul not aware of how much of a hot mess the Corinthian church was and the Corinthian believers were? This is the church 
We found out in 1 Corinthians what we assume is that severe, tearful letter. These are the people that were letting a guy in their fellowship sleep with his stepmom and weren't addressing it whatsoever. Right? Like it wasn't a problem at all. They were divided over baptism. They were divided over spiritual gifts. They were divided over who to follow, who to listen to. They were carnal. They were unloving in many ways. How are they, his letter of recommendation, to be known and read by all? If, if somebody's saying that, you think that he's talking about some pretty impressive Christians. And again, according to First and Second Corinthians, this church is not impressive. It's a mess. Beloved, they were his letter of recommendation, written on Paul's and his companions' heart to be known and read by all, simply by virtue of the fact that they believed in the pure Christ that Paul preached. And that was it. In verse 3, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Right? We're delivering you. Christ has written a letter. You are that letter delivered by us to those seeking worldly commendation. Written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. By virtue of their belief in Christ as their salvation, these believers had the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of them. Their authenticity as God's children didn't come from their moral improvement. It came by their confession to be his own by grace through faith. The spirit living in them, living in them, was at work to conform them to the image of Christ. Therefore, they were the best proof of the authenticity of Paul's work as a minister of the gospel. The fact that the Holy Spirit had moved in Paul's heart to write this letter to be known and read by all in the church at Corinth means that the Corinthians are in fact recipients of his grace and his own dear children. God is writing to them through Paul. Their belief in the Savior, Paul proclaims, is all the proof that is needed that he, in fact, represents Jesus. Do you see how informal this is? Do you see how informal it is? That's amazing. We've made it a whole business. It's so informal. God has marked these people as his own, which is what the presence of the Holy Spirit means in someone. God is saying of that person, this is my child. They're not verified to be Christians by someone else's approval. Their faith in Christ makes them what they are. It proves they belong to him. Jesus wrote these letters with the Holy Spirit. That's what these people are. And he didn't write them on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, letters in Greek and Roman culture weren't written on tablets of stone anyway. They were written with ink on papyrus usually. So what does Paul mean here in context that they were not written on tablets of stone. What is the image he's conjuring up here? In Exodus 31, 18 and 32, 15 to 16, the scripture reads that when God had finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. These tablets were the old covenant. They contained it. One was marked as a member of the people of God under that covenant, based on whether or not they adhered to what was on the tablets, possessed the sign of circumcision in their bodies, whether or not they adhered to the tablets of the testimony, the revelation of the covenant from God. But believers in Jesus Christ, under what Paul is about to call the new covenant, they are not verified to be God's children based on their behavior or their adherence to the law written on stone. 
They are verified to be his children by the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit who dwells in them all purely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is why Paul is so confident in verse 14 that even these messed up Corinthian believers do verify his apostolic commission because they're not verified as God's own by what they do, but by who dwells within them. Paul's opponents were teaching that they could only know they belonged to God or had any right to claim themselves as belonging to God if their progress showed that. Paul knows God's Spirit will produce his fruit in the lives of these believers because he's already produced their belief in Christ. Verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's massive. I am not a minister of the law and the gospel. I am a minister of the gospel. These are two different categories, beloved. Paul's confidence in verse 14 does not come from believing in verse 15 that he is sufficient in and of himself and with his own knowledge and abilities as a minister. That's what all his opponents had to stand on. That's what these letters of recommendation were doing. Others verified their knowledge, their abilities with these letters. That's how we know they were legalists who abandoned the gospel, peddling God's word. When someone does not stand on grace as the means of all their provision and commission and calling as a minister, they have to resort to coercion. They have to resort to man-centered approval of their message. They become ministers of the letter that kills the law written on tablets of stone. These opponents of Paul are essentially ministers of the Old Covenant. Their authenticity was verified by how well they kept the law, how well they were able to convince others to do what they said. You have to use the law to do that, to control other people, because the gospel won't let you. One has to be made sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant. Why? Because it's of the spirit. It's not of the flesh. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. A minister of the old covenant has to rest in his accomplishments, in his own righteousness, and therefore his skills, his sufficiency as a minister. The only proof that they have are their numbers. The people that get cleaned up and act right when they speak, but they're dealing out death. They have to point again to their numbers and their accomplishments. The new covenant minister has to point to Christ and what he is doing in the lives of those who confess his name, even if the progress is extremely slow. Paul's gospel says, listen, where Christ resides by his spirit, there is a child of God, period. No qualifications whatsoever regardless of where they are personally in the progress of their faith. The letter kills. Beloved, that's what the law still does exclusively. It kills. Paul does not say it used to be that the law was a ministry of death and the letter killed you, but now you have the Holy Spirit, so now it's a message of life. No, it isn't. It will never be a message of life. Do this and live is death. It's death. The good news of the gospel is not, hey, 
Now you can do what kills you. The good news is that the law has been done for us by Christ. It's not been voided out. Somebody obeyed it and transfers that obedience to us. The law does not make us more righteous. It does not enable us to produce the righteousness that God requires. It condemns us because it is so holy and righteous and good. And we are not. It reveals that no human can possibly obey all of it. So adherence to law does not prove that one belongs to God. In fact, if you're using it to prove that, what you're using it to do is prove that your performance is the means of your standing with God. It is not so With the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit is only gained by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. One believes in Christ because the Spirit has given them life that they might have faith and seals them as God's own until the day of redemption. What a Christian has faith in is the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus to forgive all their sin and the righteousness of Jesus to perform all of their obedience. He gives us His Spirit. Why? So his spirit will produce his fruit in us. Notice it is the fruit of the spirit. It is not your fruit by the spirit working through you. It is the fruit of the spirit in you. He produces his fruit. We do not produce the fruit of the spirit by our obedience to the law. The spirit produces obedience to Christ by his power abiding in us, by his presence in us. Where one believes in Christ, the Spirit resides. Paul just made that clear in verse 3. Paul has confidence that his ministry is authentic and effective because the Spirit dwells in the Corinthian believers, which means that neither their identity as God's children or their conformity to Christ depends on his abilities as a minister. God has made Paul sufficient for such a ministry that gives life because both its contents and its delivery are provided by grace. Paul does not rely on the letter to produce the fruit of the Spirit, but the Spirit to produce the fruit of the Spirit. The law kills. That's what the law does. It kills. But the Spirit gives life in verse 6. They are presented to us as two entirely different categories. Listen to Paul in Romans 2.29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise, his commendation is not from man, but from God. You see, the Scriptures make this point for us. The law is a means to worldly commendation, to commendation of the flesh. That's not how a Christian verifies him or herself. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Nobody else sees that. Nobody else sees your and my commendation from God. It's obtained by grace through faith. It just is. Nobody needs to verify that. That's part of what Paul is saying. Why do you need letters? They believe in Christ. They belong to Him. That validates my ministry. Bonafide citizenship in the people of God is not something a man can decide for anybody. Only the presence of the Holy Spirit verifies that, and He is present in all who believe. So listen now to how a believer in Christ, who has the Holy Spirit in them, lives. Listen to Paul again in Romans 7, 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to the law, 
or having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Two different ways to live, beloved. That's what we're talking about essentially when we're talking about law and gospel. Two different ways to live. You can live by the written code on tablets of stone. Do this and live. Don't and you die. Or you can live by the Spirit. Christ is my forgiveness. Christ is my righteousness. His Spirit abides in me. I trust in Him. He makes me into what He desires me to be. One kills, one gives life. Therefore, they cannot be mixed. We will not find the power to be productive and successful by doubling down on the law. We must double down on the gospel. It is sufficient. It is sufficient. Paul is a minister of the new covenant of the spirit, not of the letter. Again, that is why he has confidence when he's just asked who is sufficient for these things. Do you understand in the first part of chapter 3, he's answering that question. He doesn't have confidence because he knows the lives of these people will eventually prove he was a successful minister. But because they believe in Christ, he knows the Spirit is dwelling within them. Paul is content then not to coerce or use force or depend on the verification of people to validate his ministry. The presence of the Spirit testifying to the Christ that Paul proclaims is sufficient enough proof. So now it all makes sense. Now we can understand his Argument here. Paul talks here as though one has to be made sufficient by God to be a minister of this new covenant. But wait a minute. Look at the language here. The new covenant sounds way better than the old, right? The old, the letter of the law, is the ministry of death in verse 7. It kills here in verse 6. Why wouldn't you need to be made sufficient to tell that? You notice that. Why do I need to be made sufficient to give people good news? Death sounds like a way harder sell that people would hate us for. How is the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ the aroma of death? It's a great message. Why would it stink? Beloved, it's an amazing thing for Paul to say that the ministry that gives life would be something we're insufficient to proclaim. All the work is done. All the work is done. We proclaim what's free. And it's also the aroma of death to people when it's the ministry of life. Why doesn't the law smell like death? It kills. Beloved, the presence of Paul's opponents here and their ministry, which is peddling the word of God for gain, by the way, in 2.17, proves to us that how the world takes the law and the gospel are two very different things. And why, when you peddle, you peddle with the law because there's profit in it. You don't peddle with the gospel. Do you know what sounds like life to the world, to the flesh? You can do it. You can do it. You can follow this. If you're serious, if you're strong, if you're committed, you'll obey this code. Try hard enough, be good enough, obey, and you'll be accepted. That gives the flesh life. That puts fire back in my bones because it lets me earn something. 
Now I don't have to be embarrassed walking around the universe like a welfare recipient of grace. I earned this. That's life. Now, what sounds like death to the world? Right? The ministry of life, the ministry of death. Well, what sounds like death to the world? Why does it sound like death to the world that you can have life in Christ? Because what is the gospel saying? Hey, keep all your good works. They'll never be good enough. You will never be good enough. I don't want your promises. I don't want your commitments. I don't want your effort. Die to all that and come follow me. I'll forgive you for free, all by my shed blood. I'll make you completely righteous apart from any of your effort and goodness and impute my goodness to your account so that that is your righteousness. And by this and by this alone, God will accept you. It's all been done for you. Just believe in me. Now, how does the world take that? Oh, really? Look, man, nobody's going to pay for my dinner. Right? I've, I've My uh, one daughter, we, we went school shopping which if you ever have an opportunity to go school shopping with three teenage girls, just don't. Just don't. But we went, and one of them brought a boy with them, which is fine. And uh, I tried to buy this young man a drink. I tried to buy this young man his lunch. And he said to my daughter, I don't take handouts. Now listen, there is a part of me that respects this in this young man. Okay? At least he has some, you know. But that's the world. That you again, we talk about this all the time. We don't want charity. We look down on people that want charity when in actuality they've just run out of options usually. Not all the time. Sometimes people are not telling the truth or they're lazy. I, I, I totally get that. But we just assume that of all of those that take charity. Maybe the people that are finally willing to take it without caring about whether or not it's embarrassing because they really need it. You know, that's where we need to be when we look at Christ. My, I used to wait in line with my mom once a month. We'd ride the Coda bus to downtown Columbus and we'd wait in the welfare line for our food stamps with all these people. It was embarrassing. My mom wanted her kids to have full bellies. So, so what if it's embarrassing, right? My dad worked his tail off. We just didn't have anything. My brother was disabled. My mom couldn't work. We were stuck. So, at that point, it's like, yeah, this is embarrassing. I don't want to live like this, but I, my kids need to eat, right? So the gospel smells like death to people because it kills them in a different way than the law does. They People don't know that the law is killing them. They think it's giving them life. The gospel says, look, I don't want anything you have. I don't want anything you have. Just believe in me. Nobody's going to pay for my dinner. I don't take charity. So give me the law. I hate it. I can't follow it. I can't be perfect. But at least my dignity remains intact. And the tact that Satan used in Eden to get Eve to doubt the sufficiency of God's word to her and Adam is played over and over and over again every time Jesus is rejected. Everybody's sufficient to be a minister of the old covenant. Everybody is a minister of law. Do this and you live. Don't do this and you die. Don't do this and I break up. Don't do this and I divorce. Don't do this and I walk out. Don't do this and I quit, right? Everybody's a minister of the law. We're all sufficient for it. Nobody is sufficient to be a minister of grace. Law is law. Do it, you live, don't you die. That's pretty straightforward. The gospel, the gospel is amazing. 
It's amazing. It's unbelievable if God doesn't raise me from the dead so that I can believe it. So when we hear that we are the aroma of Christ to God, which means to some we smell like life and to some we smell like death, it's not just that by rejecting Christ we're doomed for eternity. It's that we're, the gospel tells people they have to die to their desire to save themselves. We stink to a world that lives on commendation and approval and achievement and effort and badges of honor. That's where we proclaim that God isn't the least bit interested in any of that from us. That he can make men like Paul sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant. Men like me sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the message I proclaim. Everybody's sufficient or can be made sufficient to be a minister of the new covenant because to be that is pure grace. We have to understand when we hear that we're the aroma of Christ to God, which means to some we smell like life and to some we smell like death, we have to understand the impossibility in and of ourselves to be the ministers of such a message. A message. I tell us this because we here at Moundsville Baptist Church must tap back into our desperation and back into his provision as his church in the Ohio Valley. We have to be made sufficient to be the ministers God has called us to be. We have to start there. Start there. We need Jesus here or, or, or we can't be the church. Right. So what do you think our church smells like to Moundsville? What do you think we smell like in the Ohio Valley? Beloved, God says they pick up smells. We are the aroma of Christ to God, spreading the fragrance of him everywhere. We are ministers of the new covenant of the spirit that gives life, not of the letter that kills. This is who God says we are, beloved. What do we smell like? Who is sufficient for these things? Paul the Apostle talks like we're completely insufficient at being what we've been clearly called to be. Like we can't do it unless we're made sufficient for it. Do we realize that here? Do we realize that we need to be made sufficient to be who he's called us to be? Do we realize that we're utterly helpless and insufficient for a task we're very clearly commanded to do? Our success in fulfilling our calling as the church will depend completely on the power of God, not on our fitness for it. Our faithful and ongoing work to spread the knowledge of Christ requires constant empowerment from God above. But beloved, here's what we need to grasp Tonight, here's what I hope we walk away with. We are sufficient because he's made us sufficient. We are sufficient because he's made us sufficient. We are up to this task. Not in our own flesh because we have the necessary talent, but because of the reality of the new covenant. God makes people his bona fide children by the blood and righteousness of his son, seals them with his Holy Spirit. They are safe. They are adopted. They're purified. They're clean. They're righteous. They're accepted. Now go tell the world about Jesus. In Christ, God has made us whole. He's put his spirit in us, not just so that we'll obey him. But so we'll also have all the power of God himself residing in us to proclaim this message of salvation. To have the spirit abiding in us through Jesus Christ is precisely what makes a person sufficient 
for ministry in the new covenant. So we don't have to fear a lack of success. We don't have to be limited by our own abilities. We don't need the approval of people. We simply need to behold the risen Christ who has ratified this new covenant and obey him of his people. We're not ministers of the law. That's not why we'll smell like death. We're ministers of the spirit. We're ministers of that which gives life to people, which is nothing to be ashamed of. Our ministry is the victory parade of Jesus in the world. We've already won because Jesus is already victorious. We're in a parade here. So yes to some, the fragrance given off by this celebratory processional smells like death. To other, it smells like, to others, it smells like life. So we don't need to adjust it. We just need to proclaim it. By our proclamation of that, we are the aroma of Christ to God. We're made sufficient by God's covenant love for us in Christ, shed abroad in our hearts by His Spirit. The question before us in light of this text then is not whether we are sufficient or insufficient for this task. We know that in ourselves we're not sufficient, but in Christ God has made us sufficient. The question then is, will we be such ministers in the Ohio Valley? Will we surrender ourselves so that to one another and to this community, we are the aroma of nothing but Christ. Will we let every other fragrance we could put off dissipate that the fragrance of Jesus and Jesus alone is what would pour out of this place? Beloved, we aren't even limited by our lack of complete holiness. There were problems in Corinth that needed solved, and we have our own. We have our own problems. We don't have any major rebellious carnality issues here, but there are things about us that we need to change. Absolutely. There will always be those things. We need to structure our church and its constitution and its polity the way the Bible tells us to. We need to be willing to make changes to things, like our music, like our appearance even, our corporate gatherings, so that engagement with Christ is more accessible to us, to everybody in here, and to the community we've been placed within to reach with the gospel. But here's the thing. We've been made sufficient for this. We cannot fail. So if there's a hesitancy in us to be such ministers, the fault is not in God's provision. It's in our hesitation. And beloved, this is the new covenant. God has put His Spirit in us. He's redeemed us through Jesus Christ. And the constant, long, enduring work of the Spirit is proof enough that the gospel we proclaim, the same one Paul proclaimed, is valid. What we preach gives life. Christ's victory was won for the glory of His Father and the salvation of even the uttermost sinner. So, in light of that, let's just give our lives away. Let's just give our lives away. Let's let go of everything we cling to for the sake of Christ. Let us go to Him for the grace, not just to bear His name, but to proclaim that grace to this valley. 